We're going to do what we do each Sunday now. We'll look at a passage from God's Word. We'll talk about what it means, why it matters, and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible with you, Bible app, there's even a Bible underneath the seat in front of you. If you want to turn to Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 21, starting at verse 23, and I'll ask you today to just kind of put your finger in it, uh, because we're going to kind of jump in and out of our passage today, mix things up a little bit. So just have that with you open and ready as we dive into that today. Let me just pray for us quickly in this time in God's Word, and then we'll jump right into it. Spirit of God, I ask you to illumine the preaching of your Word. Open eyes and hearts and ears to what it is you want to accomplish through your Word in in, in each of our lives. And, And as your servants have prayed for years, God, I ask today, would you lift up the light of your face upon us? As I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. Well, arrogance, writes blogger Tim Urban, is ignorance plus conviction. Have you heard this before? Arrogance equals ignorance plus conviction. A a painfully true equation that I think everyone in here has probably at least either experienced firsthand or participated in, uh, likely both if you're anything like me. Uh, He goes on to say this, while humility is a permeable filter that absorbs life experience and converts it into knowledge and wisdom. Arrogance is a rubber shield that life experience simply bounces off. And to be clear, uh, by ignorance, uh, Urban's not talking about uh, stupidity necessarily or lack of access to information. What he's talking about primarily is the inability to properly assess any given situation based almost entirely on our biases or or preconceived ideas. In his book, uh, Think Again, organizational psychologist Adam Grant lists two of the main biases that most often lead to this kind of ignorance. Uh, He has uh, confirmation bias, whereby um, our our assessment of the data is skewed as we see simply what we expect to see from the data. And then, of course, desirability bias where the data is skewed by we we see what we expect to see or what we're hoping we'll see when we look at the data. Both of these things uh, are are common biases that lead us to this kind of ignorance. And I think Grant is right. He puts it this way. He says, these biases don't just prevent us from applying our intelligence. They can actually contort our intelligence into a weapon against the truth. So the example Grant uses to illustrate this, I think we're going to be okay, don't worry. (laughs) I think we're going to be okay. I just want to state it that way. The example Grant uses to illustrate kind of these biases in action is a study that was done from math whizzes uh, and and how it was they analyzed data. And it said that their ability to analyze data as math whizzes was actually superior only as long as the data that they were analyzing was about some bland subject, something that didn't elicit any kind of strong, powerful emotions, uh, say something like gun laws in the United States, which then wildly skewed the results that they got from their analysis. Thus, based on the results of this study, Grant concludes this way. He says, being a quant jock makes you more accurate in interpreting the results as long as they support your beliefs. Yet, if the empirical pattern clashes with your ideology, math prowess is no longer an asset, it actually becomes a liability. 
So that's the example that Grant uses in his book. The example that Matthew is going to use in our passage today of these same biases in action is of the religious rulers in Jesus' day. And the way that their biases prevented them from accurately assessing the situation, both of who Jesus truly was, as well as responding to his divine authority with obedience. And I want to look at this example from Matthew's gospel together with you today because I think whether you would identify yourself today as a follower of Jesus or not, you and I are in no less danger of that same kind of arrogance, remember ignorance plus conviction, ourselves. Arrogance that, that, that would cause us in this case to miss Jesus, to, to miss the fullness of life that he came to bring every one of us, just like the religious rulers did, while at the same time believing the entire time that we're in the right, just as the religious rulers in Jesus' day also did. So in order that we might learn to kind of really see and identify those biases in our lives, as well as avoid that same kind of arrogance of the religious rulers, I want to look at this passage today in three simple ways. We're going to talk about the origin of authority, the origin of belief, and then lastly we'll look at the origin of obedience. So those three things, the origin of authority, belief, and obedience. So again, if you have that passage open, your Bible, Bible app, uh, would you open it there with me? Follow along together, Matthew 21, beginning at verse 23. Follow along with me as we talk about authority and the nature of true obedience. Now, if you haven't been with us uh, over the last little bit, um, our passage today actually concludes everything that we've been looking at for the last two weeks, where you had Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, the beginning of verse chapter 21, to his cleansing of the temple, which we looked at last Sunday. The religious rulers, yeah, unsurprisingly, were highly offended, super triggered uh, by both of these things, and as a result, they decide now, we're going to see here, to publicly confront Jesus, hopefully humiliate him as well, about these things as he returns to the temple the next day. That's where our story kind of picks up. But I'm going to trust that you can all follow along with me, because for clarity's sake, I'm going to break with our usual pattern and not read the entire passage uh, all together at once. Don't worry, this will develop neuroplasticity for you if you can switch your patterns every now and then. And I'm going to just kind of break up our passage and read it with the three consecutive points I just mentioned. So if you look there at the beginning of our passage, verse 23, we're going to talk first of all about the origin of authority. So again, we, we pick up this story and Jesus is on his way back to the temple the following day after the whole cleansing of the temple scene. This is where Jesus had overturned tables and cleared out the money changers in the temple courts, which he said were turning God's house into a den of robbers. And then Matthew tells us this. And when he, this is Jesus, entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I will also ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, where did it come from? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, oh, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, then why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we're afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And he said to them, huh, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. 
So there's actually a, quite a bit going on in this first section of our passage here. But what I want to focus on in particular is this question raised about authority. Jesus had been causing quite a stir over the last few days, upsetting so much more than tables in their view. And, and the religious rulers here, they want to get to the bottom of this. They want to know, okay, by what authority is Jesus carrying out these actions? Basically, show us your credentials, Jesus. Your credentials for teaching and preaching and healing and, I don't know, furniture rearrangement. Like, like, where do you get the authority to do these things? Which makes sense to some degree. I mean, even in our modern-day context, if you consider, for example, here at Dunbar Heights, one of our core values being the Word of God. So that means yeah, we take it very seriously. We, we, we check and we want to make sure anybody who gets up here to preach or teach someone who leads a class or a Bible study, that they're trained, they're qualified to teach God's Word, lest someone claiming the authority of God's Word would, would teach anything that goes against what God's Word actually says. So that makes sense, and, and that's, in a sense, what the religious rulers are doing here as well. Authority was a big deal in, in Jesus' day as far as like those who were preaching and teaching, and, and it was pretty much exclusively given to the religious rulers as the ones who would check and qualify these things. So as Leon Morris puts it, kind of helping us understand how this works out, he says, in rabbinic schools, it was necessary to cite some previous rabbi if you wished to obtain a hearing. Authority was always clothed with some external justification. So you couldn't just preach and teach. You had to say, as rabbi so-and-so says, or as the law of Moses says, and then your words had authority. Same thing here, yet as D.A. Carson adds, their concern in asking who gave him this authority sprang less from a desire to identify him than from a desire to stifle and perhaps ensnare him. So there's something of a dual purpose going on with their question here, but hopefully you're already seeing the, the bias implicit here behind their question because the implicit assumption in their question is that Jesus has no authority. Right? He's got no authority to be doing any of these things, as they were the ones who authorized teaching, any activity in the temple, and therefore believed his activity was invalid. So really, the only reason they're asking this question publicly is they just want to make that clear to anyone who might want to listen to Jesus, like, he's got no authority. He's got no authority to say any of these things. So they're trying to call him out. But as you see in verse 25, look with me there. Jesus responds to their very loaded question with an equally loaded question of his own, about the baptism of John. Basically, he's putting it back to them and saying, okay, what about um, John the Baptist, his whole ministry? Where, where did he get all the authority that he did for everything that, that he was going on with his ministry? And you get a much clearer sense in the second half of verse 25 and into verse 26 of, of why Jesus' question was so loaded as they kind of deliberate back and forth between each other about how they're going to answer him. They know if they say his authority was from heaven, Jesus is going to say, why didn't you believe him? Why weren't you getting in the water, getting baptized if he was, had authority from heaven? But then they also know if they say that his authority was only from man, like that John was no true prophet, you know, they were afraid of the people. And he's also, Jesus would probably say, well, why wasn't he silenced, censured for misleading so many people? And so, as we saw, in the end, they choose to punt the question rather than risk answer by responding, we don't know. Hard to say, really. But then, of course, allowing Jesus to avoid having to answer the question of where his authority comes from. So, whew, okay, so danger averted, right? Jesus sure got out of that one. Well, no, actually. Um, that's not the case. The reality is Jesus 
wasn't actually trying to avoid having to answer their question at all. In fact, embedded within the answer to Jesus' question about John the Baptist's authority was the answer to their question about his authority. For if you know anything about John's ministry, it was very much ordained and empowered by the Spirit right from birth, actually. And and, and then if you watch and follow what John does in his preaching and teaching, first of all, he sees himself very much as the forerunner, the one who goes ahead of the Messiah preparing the way, and then identifies Jesus as the one who is that Messiah. Remember, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Therefore, as D.A. Carson again puts it, far from avoiding the religious leader's question, Jesus answers it so that the honest seeker of truth, unswayed by public opinion, will not fail to see who he is. While those interested only in snaring him with captious questions are blocked by a hurdle their own shallow pragmatism forbids them to cross. It goes on here. In one sense, the Sanhedrin enjoyed not only the right, but the duty to check the credentials of those who claim to be spokesmen for God. But because they misunderstood the revelation already given to them in the scriptures and rejected the witness of the Baptist, the leaders proved unequal to their responsibility. They raised the question of Jesus' authority. He raises the question of their competence to judge such an issue. It's like, man, if you can't even tell me who who John's authority was from, how how are you going to measure mine? For as we've seen throughout Matthew's gospel, and I, I know we've been in Matthew a long time, we're almost there, guys. We're almost at the end. Jesus is, I mean, he is unquestionably, unmistakably the Son of God. He's the one who speaks with the authority of God, not because he's co-opted it in some way or because he's earned the right to speak with God's authority. No, he speaks with the authority of God because he himself is God in human flesh, come to dwell among and redeem a people for himself. And if you're here today and you share the religious ruler's doubt that Jesus is who he presented himself to be time and time again. I mean, we can have a conversation about that. Uh, I would love to talk more with you about why I and so many people here believe that Jesus is the one who speaks with God's authority because God is who Jesus is. But the question that I want to put out there for consideration just for the moment is for those of you here today who would say you do believe Jesus speaks with the authority of God. You'd say, no, I I I believe that, that his authority comes from heaven itself. Because I don't know if you're at all like me, but something I've found over the course of my life is that my belief and my faith in Jesus' divine authority can be a little bit like those math whizzes, those quant jocks from the study that Adam Grant was mentioning that I mentioned as we began. Namely this, like my faith in Jesus' divine authority is an asset until Jesus says something or commands something that doesn't align with my preconceived ideas about how something should go or what it should look like. Basically, Jesus speaks with God's authority as long as he says things that are in line with what I already think and feel. But have Jesus say something that conflicts with that? Have him, some teaching of his, go against what, what my preconceived ideas look like? And all of a sudden, I find myself arguing with the same bias, the same kind of questioning of the religious rulers. Where does Jesus' authority really come from anyway? And then, in the end, ultimately just kind of punting on the question because I don't want to deal with the implications if Jesus' authority really is from heaven, but I don't want to go as far to say that it isn't. I don't know, am I just, am I just crazy? Does anyone else do this? Are, are you resonating with any of this? Or do you see how like, that, that it's this, this bias of mine 
Just like the religious rulers, the bias ends up distorting my ability to answer the question properly of Jesus' authority. Like I can't just look at the data for what it is anymore because my preconceived ideas skew how I look at it, how I understand it. Which at the end of the day, I suppose it's just to say, for, and for all of us to truly consider, if Jesus' authority is God's own authority, then what he says, what he teaches, it needs to be obeyed. It needs to be submitted to regardless of whether or not it aligns with my preconceived ideas of what is or how things should be. It needs to be submitted to. And if it's not, then, then why bother worrying about being obedient to anything Jesus says? Who cares? If it's not from heaven, it can be ignored. The point is, at the end of the day, though, a non-answer, an unwillingness to answer the question of Jesus' authority, where it originates from, is actually revealing the answer to your question, whether or not you want it to. It is revealing the answer. Okay, so that's the origin of authority, the, the need for us to really have clarity, especially when we're dealing with some difficult teaching of Jesus, that, that is to like where and, and what the origin of Jesus' authority is, where it lies. Is his authority from heaven and divine, or is it from man? Is it just derived from only himself? We need to be able to answer that question, and we need to be consistent in how we answer it. But then, following the religious ruler's non-answer, they're not willing to dive in there, uh, which, as we said, actually was their answer to the question, Jesus now goes on to tell two stories which help illustrate both the biases of the religious rulers and the consequences of those biases. And the first one of those two stories, we're going to learn next about the origin of belief. The origin of the belief. And where you see this question discussed is in the next section of our passage, verse 28. Look with me there now. Matthew writes this. Jesus says, what do you think? A man had two sons, and he went out to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he said, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same, and he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? And they said, The first. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes believed him, and even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. So now, as if to kind of illustrate the implications of their unanswered question that Jesus just asked, Jesus gives them this story, this kind of case study of what belief in his divine authority does and does not look like with this story of a landowner. Guy with a vineyard, two sons, he asked them to go out and work in the vineyard. Which is interesting, and it would have stood out probably immediately to these first century hearers as they're hearing it, even if it doesn't to us, how strange this is. right? If, if, if a man was wealthy enough to own land like this, own his own vineyard, he would have almost certainly had hired workers to go out into the vineyard and work for him. He wouldn't have been asking his sons to go and do manual labor like this. There's no way. And who knows, Like maybe some kind of dire circumstances that, that would require such an unusual request is part of the point that Jesus is making. But regardless, how each of the sons responds to the father's question clearly meant to illustrate the larger point that Jesus is making about the origin of his authority, that the religious rulers, they just seemed unwilling to answer or to believe. But as you see, verse 31, look there, Jesus still puts the question to them in light of the story. Which of the two sons did the will of his father? 
And the religious rulers, I mean, they're, they, now they're quite happy to answer. They feel like, oh, I can answer this one without any consequence. They say, oh, the first one, that is the son who, although that he had rejected the father's authority at first, later thought better of it and went and did what the father had requested. That's the right answer. The point for everyone, just at a base level, already being someone saying they submit to God's authority is a very different thing than the person who actually does it. But then again, look at the, look at the pretty harsh application of his story that Jesus gives to the religious rulers. I say to you that tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. Wow. Which means what? Well, again, uh, it's a little bit lost on us in our modern 21st century Western context. But in Jesus' day, tax collectors and prostitutes, that was something of a, a catchphrase that signified all like, those kinds of people who, who clearly, you know, they, they're disobedient to God, they reject God's authority, and therefore they're outside of the kingdom of God. It's sort of just a, a catchphrase to include all those people that they would have thought as outside the kingdom. But understanding that now, can you imagine then how offensive Jesus' words would have been to these religious rulers to hear that those who were seen by all polite Jewish society as the outcasts, the scum of society, who rejected God's authority, they were entering the kingdom of God before them? These ones who, who knew and dedicated their lives to obedience to the law of Moses and that, that so like inspired and intimidated everyone else around them? These guys go in before us? Excuse me? But look, here's the thing that you, you need to consider and you can't miss when you're seeking to understand the origin of belief. You need to understand why it was that Jesus said the tax collectors and prostitutes were going into the kingdom of God before the religious rulers. And the reason was because of their repentance. Repentance. This, this, in the Greek, metanoia, a word that means to turn 180 degrees from going in one direction to walking now in the other direction, signifying submission to the authority of God. I'm going this way. God says, I don't go that way. I need you to go this way. That's dangerous. That's going to harm you. Go this way. And, and submission to his authority means I turn the other way and go the way that he's calling me. So that what it means here, the tax collectors and prostitutes who had heard John's teaching and then received a baptism of repentance upon believing his message were exactly like the first son in the parable. Those who initially rejected the father's authority, I'm going to live my own way, do my own life, but then had a change of mind. They repented and then, and then now they've become the ones who obey the will of the father. Whereas the religious rulers, right, they're like the second son who professed submission to the authority of God. They, they appeared like dutiful sons, while at the same time evidencing their unbelief by their lack of repentance, their unwillingness to repent. Carson puts it this way, Jesus is saying that the scum of society, though it says no to God, repents, performs the will of God, and enters the kingdom, whereas the religious authorities loudly say yes to God, but never do what he says, and therefore fail to enter. F.D. Bruner adds this, this, doing God's work is first of all and fundamentally belief in God's true messengers. What Israel's leadership fail, failed to perform was not a lack of meticulous obedience to the rules. This the leadership had in excess. Its failure was the refusal to believe God and God's authorized ministers. Then John and now Jesus. And the takeaway very simply for every single one of us this morning is just to honestly ask yourself, whether or not your professed belief in Jesus has been and continues to be evidenced by repentance in your life. Not, not just repentance when your relationship with Jesus begins. That's, a, that's kind of a, 
fallacy that I, I repent and then I, I enter into the kingdom and now I'm done repenting. Uh, it was famous uh, reformer Martin Luther who said, uh, Jesus has willed that all of the life of a believer is to be one of repentance. It's, it's a continuous action throughout our faith and our walk with Jesus. Just to say, are you continually striving daily as God's Spirit will both kind of reveals places in your life where repentance is needed, as well as applies the saving work of Jesus to those areas of need in such a way that your life more and more looks like the one who saved you? Or like the religious rulers, have you just simply learned how to walk the walk and talk the talk really well? You show up at church on Sunday, we put some money in the plate. I learn how to speak in a way that sounds really spiritual. I know when to raise my hand in the song. Maybe I got my big playlist of Chris Tomlin songs on my Spotify, whatever it is. While at the same time, inside, behind closed doors, your life and practice looks no different than the world around you. Guys, that's, that's absolutely my testimony. That's most of my life as a, as a Christian, just living this totally like duplicitous. I just know how to sound right, but my life isn't anywhere near submitted to Jesus. Most of you might know a little later in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus uses a stark image to depict this false reality that the religious rulers regularly demonstrated, describing them as whitewashed tombs, he says, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead man's bones and all uncleanness. For the origin of belief, or maybe better said, the, the best evidence of true belief in the life of a believer is repentance. To which I'm sure someone might want to respond by asking, okay, what, so the religious rulers never repented? No, 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 absolutely they did. They repented all the time for all kinds of things. The problem was, even their repentance was tainted with unbelief. Because rather than seeing their repentance as submission to the will and the authority of God, as relying on His grace, they saw it simply as one more means by which they earned their acceptance with God and achieved a higher moral position above everybody else. Tim Keller says it so well in light of this reality. The thing that will heal your heart is not only to repent of bad things, it's to repent as well for the reason you do all the good things as a means of avoiding your need for Jesus as Savior. Okay. We've looked at the origin of authority origin of belief. Last thing I want to look at together with you quickly is the origin of obedience. Where you see this is in Jesus' second story, depicting both the biases of the religious rulers as well as the consequences of those, beginning at verse 33. Look with me here. Jesus says here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit, and the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. 
When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And they said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. And Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. So once again, just like the last story, we find ourselves once again in a vineyard, which if you were here with us not too long ago as we worked through Matthew 20, the image of a vineyard is almost always used as a picture of the kingdom of God and, and us as laborers in God's kingdom. But the first thing that you need to notice is the description of the work the master of the house does in preparation of this vineyard. In verse 33, look there. As he prepares it for fruit production, you see that the master is, first of all, he's the one that owns the vineyard. He owns the land. Secondly, he's the one that does all the planting of the vineyard. Thirdly, he digs this wine press so that the production of wine can begin as soon as the fruit is ready for harvest. And lastly, he provides all the means for protection, the fence, the watchtower, so that the vineyard will be able to produce the best crop possible without the threat of, of invaders, or predators. That's the first thing to notice. The next thing to notice is the term Jesus uses to refer to the laborers in the master's vineyard throughout his parable. What does he call them? Tenants. Now, I'm not a property owner. I'm not even like a building manager like Ken and Carol, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that the word tenant doesn't mean owner. Is that, is that right? A tenant is not an owner? Yeah, pretty sure. And yet as you read this parable, what? What do you see again and again that leads the tenants to rebel against the will of the master? Isn't it that they, they're acting like owners and not tenants? Now, there was a provision in Jewish law that if a landowner failed to collect rent, or in this case maybe failed to collect the agreed-upon portion of harvest as payment to live and work on his land, if he did that for three years, the land title could actually be transferred to the tenants uh, as, as, as a result of negligence of the landowner. So that's, that's possibly what these tenants were kind of hoping they could pull off. But regardless, either because they're simply rejecting the master's authority or because they imagine pretty soon I'm going to be the master of this vineyard, the tenants of the vineyard, they're not acting like tenants. They're acting like owners protecting their land and their crop. This is mine. I'm not giving this to you. But when you see Jesus' application of the parable there in verse 43 now, look there. You see very quickly that just like the parable of the two sons, there's a real-life spiritual parallel to this story as well. As God, he is clearly the master of the vineyard. The tenants in the vineyard, these are the religious rulers. The, the servants who are sent to gather the fruit, these are the prophets sent throughout Israel's history. And the son that the master sends finally as a last-ditch effort is Jesus himself. And as a direct result of their rebellion against God to produce fruit in his kingdom, seeing the, the, the temple and everything in it as, as theirs, and this is our thing to protect, Jesus says the kingdom of God will be taken away from them and given to those who will produce fruit for me. Meaning the religious rulers, if you think about that, they'd actually prophesied their own judgment back in verse 41 in answer to Jesus' question about what should he do to these wicked tenants? But the thing to see here by way of application is that what led the tenants in the vineyard to rebel against the master of the vineyard, that is, what was the origin of their disobedience, was what? It was seeing themselves as owners rather than tenants, right? 
which means what? It means, conversely, that the thing that will enable each and every one of us, you and me, who are seeking to be obedient to the will of God in our own lives, to actually carry that out on a consistent basis, the origin of our obedience is always in seeking to remember everything we call mine, including our life itself, belongs to God, and we are but tenants stewarding what ultimately belongs to him. That's the origin of our obedience. I mean, think about it. Can't you trace virtually every act of disobedience in your life back to understanding yourself as the owner of your life and everything in it, as opposed to being a tenant or a steward of it? What, what causes you to withhold generosity from giving to others, giving to the work of the church? Isn't it like, hey, this is my money. I, I worked hard for this. I'm going to use it how I see fit. What, what, what causes us to withhold hospitality? Isn't it, man, this is, this is my house. It's my food and groceries. I worked hard for these things. No one's going to tell me how to use these things. These are mine. What, what drives so many of your decisions about your body, your sexuality, your eating habits? My body, my choice. I'm not making a political statement there. I'm just trying to say it's our understanding. This is mine, even though the owner of the vineyard has done everything in order to actually make it possible. We see it as mine, and that actually leads to our disobedience. Beginning to see it, the origin of obedience, submission to the authority of Jesus in your life and mine is about how you understand your place in the vineyard or in God's kingdom. Whether you truly understand yourself as a tenant and a steward of all that God has provided, or whether you see yourself as the owner and the proprietor of it. One last element from Jesus' parable that we haven't talked about yet and I want to look at quickly in closing, both because of its seemingly incomprehensible nature as well as just what it reveals, this profound thing it reveals about the nature and character of God. And it's this last-ditch effort of the master of the vineyard. You see there in verse 37, after already sending two separate contingents of servants to collect his fruit and they're beaten and stoned and killed in the sending of his own son. And I don't know if it stood out to you as well, but what most commentators point out, and Jesus' original hearers would have undoubtedly picked up on as well, is just how stupid this is. Like, this is a bad idea. Just ludicrous, incomprehensible decision in, in real life that would never happen. Now, it's a story. It's not real life. But seriously, that decision makes no logical sense. After seeing how poorly, how wickedly these tenants treated the master's servants that he'd sent up until now, that he would ever... Now send his, his son to like put him into what would be obvious, clear, mortal danger? So why on earth would Jesus include such a nonsensical element in his story when he's trying to illustrate a believable point about authority and obedience? It doesn't make sense. Well, I believe the answer is that the only reason the master would ever send his son into such obvious mortal danger is if what he was truly after was not only the fruit of the vineyard, but also the tenants themselves. As Keller puts this so masterfully in his own work on this passage, he said, if he just wanted the property, there's a better way to go about it, right? You just send in the military, clear those guys out, get in new tenants. But what is he after? He says, they'll respect my son, meaning he doesn't just want the fruit, he wants them. He wants the relationship. 
He says, maybe my son will turn them. Maybe they'll see how vulnerable I'm being by sending my son. And when they see how much I don't want to arrest them and respect I'm giving them, surely they'll be able, I'll be able to reconcile with them. In other words, this is a father after relationship, not a businessman after property. He concludes like this, this very impossibility, this gross distortion in the parable picture is therefore totally intentional. For its purpose is to illustrate God's incomprehensible concern for mankind and his relentless attempts to win them over. I began this morning talking about arrogance. Remember, ignorance plus conviction, as well as these biases in our, in our lives. Biases that, as Grant again puts it, don't just prevent us from applying intelligence. They can actually contort our intelligence into a weapon against the truth. I wonder if everything that we've looked at today from God's word and these stories in particular haven't exposed maybe some biases in your own heart. Places where you question the authority of Jesus the moment anything that he commands challenges or goes against what you already think or preconceived ideas you have. Or the way you see yourself as the owner as opposed to a tenant of all God's provide. And the way those biases distort your ability to properly assess the truth truth of Jesus' authority, truth of your place in the vineyard. And as we also saw as well, we saw how repentance was the very origin, the very starting point of belief and then continual place of remaining in that place of, of growth and, and understanding ourselves rightly. And in, that, in light of that reality, I wonder if in these next moments of quiet, it's been our practice now to just take some moments of silence at the end of our passage and just sit in quiet and listen to the Spirit's voice. I wonder now in these next moments of quiet and listening, if you might open yourself to hear the call of the Spirit to repentance. Repentance of any of these biases in your own life and then receive the healing work of Jesus applied to those areas of need. So let's do that. Let's, let's, let's go together to him now and seek both the Spirit's work of revelation as well as restoration in order that we might be able to rightly assess the origin of Jesus' authority as well as whatever next thing it is that the Spirit is calling us to as we walk out of here today. Let's go to him.